Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. And we'll be in the next to last chapter. And then we go to Obadiah. And then we'll have a little fun because we'll go to the book of Jonah. And that's, that's always a good book to study. Uh, looking around, you guys look pretty tired and somber tonight. And, and uh, what better to cheer you up than the book of Amos, right? I mean, what? Actually, there is some really good news in this book. And that's that Christ is coming soon. And, and uh, that in the meantime... We are blessed to have his word, and he's going to show us that tonight as we, as we look at this uh, text in chapter 8 of Amos. If you remember, I told you that Amos has five visions about the judgment of Israel. And we're going to get the fourth vision that we already looked at, uh, uh, three of them. We're going to get the fourth one tonight, and we'll get the fifth one in the, in the last chapter of Amos. And the vision that we're going to get tonight uh, pertains to the judgment of the northern kingdom and listen to what he says beginning in chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. He says, Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon the people of Israel. I will not pass by them any more. Now it's easy to figure. Actually, you got two symbols here. You got the symbol of the Passover and you got the symbol of the summer fruit. It's easy to figure out both of them what the Lord is saying to the nation here. I mean, the summer fruit is the fruit that's on the tree at the very last part of the season. I mean, if you went over to my house at daybreak, uh, we've got a couple of fruit trees back there. There's still fruit hanging there. But I would advise you not to go pick that fruit and eat that fruit because it is rotten. The oranges are all soft and the, the kumquats are soft. And so uh, it looks like good fruit, but it's not good fruit. And that's, that's exactly the picture that the Lord's trying to paint about the nation of Israel at this point. It looks vibrant and healthy. It looks religious, but it's rotten. It's rotten to the core. And because it's rotten to the core and it's, it's already decayed, God is going to judge the nation. And so the Lord says, the end has come. Man, I don't think there's four more terrible words in the Bible than those. Is it four or five? It's four. The end has come. It's over. I'm done with you is what the Lord says uh, to the nation. I will not pass over them again. Now, you remember the Passover, right? You remember the last plague that came upon Egypt. And in, in that plague, the Lord passed over or didn't pass over. He came through the land of Egypt and he killed all of the firstborn. He didn't kill the firstborn of the Israelites. Why? Because they had the blood on the doorpost. Why did they have the blood on the doorpost? Because the Lord told them to put the blood on the doorpost. So that I will pass over you. It was, he didn't pass over the Israelites because they were better people than the Egyptians. 
He passed over them because he had given them a means of salvation. And that was his blood. And then he gave them the sacrificial system and he gave them the temple. And all of that was to give them faith so that they could have a relationship with him. But they had ignored their relationship with him. And not only that, they had gone to chasing after idols. And so they were rotten to the core. And so now the Lord says, just as I didn't pass over the Egyptians uh, during the Exodus, I'm not going to pass over you anymore because you deserve to die. And so uh, get ready. Uh, you didn't repent. Uh, you've lost sight of what the sacrificial system is all about. You don't have a relationship with me, the Lord is saying. So I'm not going to uh, pass over you anymore. And it's going to be really bad. What's going to happen to you is going to be really bad. I mean, it's going to be bad on several fronts because look at what he says. He says, in the songs of the temple shall no longer be joyful. They shall be wailing. They shall be lamentations in that day, says the Lord. Many dead bodies everywhere, and they shall be thrown out in silence. I mean, the Assyrians were coming, these savage people, they were going to come down upon the land and they were going to kill hundreds of thousands of Israelites and the bodies were going to be thrown out into the streets. And let me tell you something. I don't know if you've ever seen a body and I think everybody in there has, but there's nothing more silent than a dead body. Nothing more silent. There's no expression. There's no words. There's nothing more silent than a dead body. And think of hundreds of thousands of dead bodies and the utter, utter silence that there would be on the streets because of all of these dead bodies. And so he gives, it, gives us that picture there, that horrible picture of this, this coming judgment. And so he says in verse 4, hear this, hear this warning, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fall, saying, when will the new moon be passed? When will we sell grain and the Sabbath? And when that we and the Sabbath, when will it be over that we may take trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large? In other words, falsifying the scales by the sea that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. You understand the picture he's given right there? It's like people who come to church and they're watching their clock. See, I'm watching you if you're watching your clock. And they're watching their clock and they're saying, man, when is this going to be over? I got business to do. You know, they came to church on Saturday to the synagogue and then they and, and then they're there at the synagogue and they're not thinking about the Lord. Their mind's not on the Lord. You know what their mind's on? Their mind's on their business. I mean, when am I going to get out of here, go to Piccadilly's and then go back to business on on uh, Sunday? I mean, when's it? we're dealing with a Sabbath here on Saturday. But for us, it would be Sunday to Monday. And when am I going to get money? When am I going to get to go back to work and start making money? When am I going to be able to fleece the poor? When am I going to be able to, to, to cheat people in business so that I can make another buck? I mean, I just can't wait for that. And that's what their mind's on when their mind should be on the Lord and on repentance. And, but, but that's not the case with them. And so their religion was absolutely worthless. Absolutely worthless. And remember what Amos said early on in this book. He said that false religion or bad religion only multiplies your sins. Why does it multiply your sins? Because if you have a 
the true religion, which they were, had been given the oracles of God, if you have the right religion and yet you ignore that religion and don't do what God has called you to do, then you're actually multi, you're more accountable. You're multiplying your sins. Then he says in verse number seven, the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Am I, where did I, oh, I missed. No, I read five. Didn't I read five, five, four, five, and six? Pay attention, Lois. Put that on the, don't take that off the tape, David. Actually, you can take it off the tape from the point she asked me to read five. But I'm gonna, for Lois, I'm going to read it again. Hear this, hear this, hear this warning, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land uh, fail saying, when will the new moon be passed? In other words, get this feast over. I want to go to bed. I want to do my business. That we may sell grain and the Sabbath. When is it going to be over? That we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by the sea. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell bad wheat, spoiled wheat. We'll sell, we'll sell them some junk. just so we. And they're thinking about how they're going to, mess over people at, at, while they're at church. So they're multiplying their sins. Lois, that was good. Okay. We had a little commentary there. Now we're on verse 7, right? All right. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. What's the pride of Jacob? Well, there's two interpretations for that. Jacob's pride. Uh, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. He's talking about the pride of Jacob. Who's the pride of Jacob? The Lord himself. The Lord Jesus. He's the pride of Jacob. I mean, that's the best part of Jacob is the fact that the, the Lord came through his loins. That's, that's the pride of Jacob. And he's sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their, and I'm going to add a commentary here, any of their evil works. Not one of them. I'm not going to forget any of their evil works. So everything evil any Israelite has ever done, I'm not going to. Forget it. And I got to tell you, that has application for everyone. It has application for everyone. I mean, God is omniscient. God sees all. He knows all. He knows your thoughts. This is a scary thing. He knows your thoughts before you think your thoughts. He knows what your heart is like. He knows the evil that comes from our hearts. And he sees it all. And he hears it all. And he never forgets. He never forgets what he sees or hears. That's a pretty scary thought. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God that we're not under the old covenant, that we're under the new covenant. What's the new covenant have to say about that? Go with me over to the book of Hebrews. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage because I like to go to it a lot. But over in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole thing. Not the whole chapter, but the whole part about the new covenant quoted from Jeremiah 31. Listen to Hebrews chapter 8, beginning down in uh, verse number 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
Israelites couldn't keep that covenant. They didn't have it in them to keep that covenant, no more than you and I do either. And God knew that. He had to teach them that because remember when, when they were given the law, what did they tell Moses? All you said we will do. You know, and I think a lot of people are still saying that today. Oh, we, we, we live by the sermon. I hear people who are lost tell me they live by the Sermon on the Mount. Have they read the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, we can't do all that God has commanded for us to do. So we need a new covenant. Because finding fault with them, he says, and mercy, and having mercy on them. We can add that in the context. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in that covenant. And I disregarded them. That's the part we're looking at right now here in the book of Amos. At some point I wrote them off and I didn't pass over them anymore. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and, their, and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his and, and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to them and totally by mercy. The, co- the new covenant is all about grace and mercy. For I will be merciful, merciful to their unrighteousness and watch this. And their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Man, I'm glad I'm under that covenant. In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is beginning, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thank goodness. Thank goodness we're under the new covenant. Now, The problem is to be under the new covenant. You just not, you just not, everybody on this earth is not under the new covenant. How do we find ourselves parties to the new covenant? By the grace of God through what? Faith. We have to have faith. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of God remembering any of my sins. Even the ones I committed today. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be in a situation where I face God and he remembers my sins. And so I want to be sure I'm under the new covenant. And that's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You want to be sure that you've been born again. And that's why we studied the book of First and Second Peter and 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 First John because that's what they're. It's kind of the theme of the book is to make sure that you're saved, and he gave us those criteria for being saved. You remember what they were? First of all, we have an anointing, and we know all things. We understand the Word of God. This Word is something that we feed on and love and want. And we understand. I mean, we don't understand every single prophecy, every single detail, but we have an understanding of the gospel. We understand that we can't save ourselves. We understand that we can't sanctify ourselves. We understand that only Christ can do that. And because 
the law is written on our hearts as we're reading right here in Hebrews. Because the Lord is written, the law is written on our hearts by the, and minds by the Lord, then we keep his commandments. We don't keep his commandments to get saved like the Israelites had to do. We keep his commandments because we've been changed. Where they couldn't get, I mean, I think some of them were saved by faith, looking forward to the cross. But where they couldn't get saved through just the old covenant, it, because they were incapable of doing good things. And God wanted to show humanity that mankind are incapable in their old nature of doing the right thing. And so we get saved so that we can keep his commandment. So if you're saved, then you're bearing fruit in the fact that you're keeping the Lord's commandments. So if you're not keeping his commandments, you know, I mean, we certainly falter from time to time. But if we're not keeping his commandments as a as a normal thing, then probably we're not saved. And then the other the other thing, remember, we were told is by John is, is one of the criteria of being saved is do we love God? Do we love others? I mean, we have no love for others. We have no love for the lost. If we have no love for anyone but ourselves, then, then obviously we're not saved. So if you're not saved, God's going to remember every single sin, every single evil thought, every wrong thing we've ever done in our life. I want to be in a place where he remembers my sin no more. Now, let's go back to the book of Amos. Wow, I flipped it and it was there. The book of Amos chapter 8. And let's go back to verse number 8 and listen to what he says. Here's coming this judgment because I'm not going to forget their sins. Uh, they don't have a relationship with me. They're not in a relationship of faith. And so, so he describes this judgment. And really now he's going to kind of mingle the judgment of the nation, the northern kingdom of Israel with the judgment that's going to come upon this world during the great tribulation. Because you kind of go back and forth with this. What scholars call prophetic foreshortening where, where more than one prophecy is fulfilled uh, or is spoken of to be fulfilled in, the, in this particular passage. And that's, that's what we're looking at here. So some of it's going to be uh, pretty apocalyptic uh, for the whole earth. And, and so we know he's, he's talking about the day of the Lord there. Verse number eight, shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. Now he's describing an earthquake or shaking of the earth. And he's using the, the, the river of Egypt. What's the river of Egypt? The Nile River. The Nile River is probably the most unstable river in the world, or it's one of the most unstable rivers in the world. I mean, it can be full of rapids, and it can be calm as a, as a calm sea, as calm as glass. And then sometimes it's within its banks, and sometimes it's flooding. And most of the time, it's in turmoil, and it's unstable. And so what he's saying here is that in this last days, and, and really... What's about to happen to Israel is going to be similar to this spiritually for them. There's going to be this upheaval. There's going to be this instability. And they're not going to be able to find solid ground in their lives. And so uh, it's going to be really bad. They'll be unstable as the Nile River. 
And in the great tribulation, this world is going to be unstable as the Nile River. It's going to be a hard place to find a foundation to stand on. Spiritually and physically, things are going to be shaking so much on this earth. And when those, biggest, when those Assyrian armies came down, it was, it was just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. You know, but it's also a picture of what sometimes happens in our lives. I mean, sometimes I think we get complacent in life. I mean, we get up every morning and we think, today's going to be just like yesterday. And tomorrow's going to be just like today. And we just go on living out our lives as if things are going to continue on like this forever. And then one day God comes and steps into our lives, even as believers. And he shakes us up. And it's so hard to find solid ground as everything seems to be, your head seems to spin and everything seems to be a turmoil. You know, you ask the question, why is this happening to me? And if you're a born-again believer, God has a purpose in that happening to you or me. The purpose in that happening is, is so when things are shaken up, where do we, what do we try to hang on to? We try to hang on to what's stable. We try to put our faith in, in the Lord and in the foundation that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the same picture Jesus painted in the Gospels when he said, you know, a man who builds his foundation upon me really is what he was saying. You know, when the rains come, he's going to stand. He's going to make it. And if your foundation is not in me, then he said it's going to all collapse. And so sometimes God shakes us up really bad so that we, we draw back near to him and we put our trust. We have no choice but to put all our trust in him. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. And it's almost a place where you can come, where you can find peace and joy like you didn't have before or you were shaken up because you're back and you see God take you through something that's really bad, through unstable times, and then it begins to flow like a smooth river again and you, you, you attribute it all to the Lord. Now, he talks again uh, in the next verse, in verse number nine, about the day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down. And this obviously isn't about the Assyrian uh, a war that they had where they were taken into captivity. This isn't what this is about. This is about the day of the Lord. So he's kind of going back and forth. That I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. When they shaved their head, that was a sign they were in mourning. But, it, but it's not just going to be a symbolic mourning. Listen to what he says. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. Now, I had never lost any of my sons. But I can't think of anything more tragic anything more sorrowful than to lose a young son. And so uh, it's bitter and it's in like the bitter day. In other words, the feasts are going to be turned, you know, that were made for celebration are going to be turned into, into mourning. And then you're going to feel the worst kind of pain, the very worst kind of pain, the pain that you would feel if you, one of your sons died in your arms. 
And then listen to what he says in verse number 11. It's only going to get worse. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. That I will send a famine in the land, the worst kind of famine, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You can get through anything. When you know God's there with you. But could you imagine the disaster that came upon the nation of Israel when the Assyrians came down there and savagely and brutally attacked them and they took them away and scattered them throughout the land. Can you imagine how bad it got? Because I guarantee you every single one of them, every single one of them when that happened began to call out to the Lord. But he didn't answer. You know, I don't know about you, but when things are really tough on me, I could press in on the Lord and sooner or later I'm going to press. I'm like Jacob wrestling with the Lord. I'm going to press till I get an answer and I, and I always get an answer. I always get a word, a word of encouragement, a word of guidance, something from the Lord. James says he who lacks wisdom, ask and God is, will, will keep that promise. And I, 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 he's never failed me in that. And I know he's never failed you if you pressed in on him. But imagine being in a situation where everything around you is destroyed and you're off in captivity and then all of a sudden, where are the scriptures? They're not there. Where's the Lord? Well, I want to hear from the Lord and they're not going to hear from the Lord. I mean, I can't think of a more terrible judgment than that. Uh, there's a lot of people that say, I hear when they come to this passage or they use this passage, and they say that, uh, that God has sent a famine of the word of God on the United States of America today. Well, I don't believe that's true. The reason I don't believe that's true because there's still Bibles. Anywhere you go, you want to get a hold of a Bible, you can get a hold of a Bible. If you want to go listen to the word being preached, there are churches, God has placed churches and pastors in every area of the United States, I believe, if, if somebody's really interested, they're going to be there uh, to teach the word of God. So I don't believe we're there yet. But the scary thought is the more and more secular we become and the more and more we move the word of God out of our society, there will come a point one day when there is a famine of the word of God on, on the land. I mean, you look at the nations of Iran and, and Iraq those, the, the, and Egypt, those places, the, the Bible used to go out there freely. There was a time when, when the whole gospel was going out in the world, even in Paul's day. And the word of God was going out into all the world. Man, you know, they talk about revivals over there, but I, I don't see it. And I'm sure there's some Christians there and I'm sure there's going to be Christians, you know, or there were going to be Jews who were saved during all of this, too. But 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 as far as a nation goes, those nations have t taken forsaken the word for a for a demonic word, the Quran. And so it's gotten so dark. Good luck finding the word of God being preached. You're not going to find it. There's a famine of the word of God. And then you look at what's happening in Europe and how they've become secular. But that's not going to be left like that. 
And you see all of these Muslims coming in and all of these mosques and all of the churches being closed down. And there's a famine coming upon them for the word of God. And when things get really bad and they cry out to the Lord, there's going to come a point they're not going to hear the Lord. And the Lord helped the United States of America because we're, we're, we're heading down the same path as Europe is heading if, if, if there's not some kind of repentance and change in our country. Why, why would God send a famine when they needed the word the most? You know why? Because he knows the hearts of people. He knows the only reason they want the word is because they, they want to get out of trouble. And as soon as they got out of trouble, I mean, read the book of Judges. He gives you that, that scenario over and over and over again. As soon as they got out of trouble, then they were going to go right back to doing the things that they did before. So God knows that. So he sends a famine. Just like in the Great Tribulation, he sends a delusion, a great delusion. To fool. God sends it. You don't want the word? Then I'll send you a delusion. I think the, a lot of these false religions that are taking over the world today are delusions. Man, stop and think about it. Want some good news tonight? Ponder it. You came here to hear good news. Let me give you some good news. There will never be, if you're a born-again believer, ever, ever be a famine for the Word of God. Because the Word of God lives in you. The Logos, Christ in you, your hope of glory. You, the, if you're studying the Word, you're taking on the very mind of Christ. And so the word of God is in your mind and it's in your heart. You have the Holy Spirit in you to speak to you in your prayers. If you were in a cell in the middle of nowhere without a Bible or anything, God could speak his word to you because he's in you. I'm grateful that there's never going to be a famine for the word of God for me. And I'm so blessed because like the Israelites here for, for years, I had the word thrown at me left and right and I rejected it. And the very fact that God showed his grace to me and now has given me his word and it's even part of my soul. Man, I am so grateful for that. Good news. And look, here, he speaks of the fate of the Israelites now in verse number 12. Is it verse 12, Lois? Okay, I want to make sure. All right. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Man, they were scattered. When this judgment finally came upon them, they were scattered all over the world. Some of them are still scattered over the world today from this very judgment that we're looking at here. And when they got scattered... From the north to the east, they, they started seeking out the word of the Lord, but they couldn't find it. They can't even hear it today, the true word of God. They've been blinded in part until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So they, they've been under a famine for a long time. I'm sure God spoke to a remnant of good Jewish people, and I think he still does that today, but as the nation as a whole, they're still living under a famine of the word of God. 
And you look at, just look at the history after Malachi, it was 430 years. Again, I think God spoke from time to time to various individuals who were part of that remnant. But as far as speaking to the nation, it was 430 years after Malachi that Jesus walked, the word of God walked into the temple. Said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Then finishing up, he says, In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. You know, every single soul has been created for God. To know God and to know his word. And without his word, people thirst and they hunger. The way it's always been, it's the way it always will be. Until we go into eternity, when everybody knows the Lord. Those who square by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba, Dan's the far north, Beersheba's the far south of Israel, they shall fall and never rise again. Why was there a famine for the word of God in the land? Because the Lord was done with his people, the people of the northern kingdom. And he says they shall fall and they shall never rise again. The northern kingdom will never rise again. Never. A united kingdom, a united Israel with both Samaria and Judah, Ephraim and Judah, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, is going to rise again. To some degree, some people say that's happening now. Nothing like it's going to happen when God pours out his spirit at the end of, on the Israelites at the end of the great tribulation. And they look on him whom they've pierced. And they mourn as a mother mourns who's lost her only firstborn son or lost her firstborn son. And then they will, the judgment will be over. And the king of kings the Lord of Lords, the Word of God, will sit on the throne in Israel for a thousand years. See, there's really good news here. Next week we, we get to the last chapter. You always look forward to the last chapters of the Minor Prophets. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayers. Father, we again, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you for, for the hope we have. We are so blessed, Lord. Lord, you're, we're so blessed to be living as as children of your mercy, Lord. Uh, none of us deserve to hear your word. None of us deserve to be saved, Lord. You, you've chosen us, and uh, Lord, we've believed, and by faith uh, we're promised so many wonderful things. Lord, well, I just thank you for, for your goodness to us, Lord. I thank you uh, for, for choosing us and, and giving us your Holy Spirit and giving us your word. And so that we don't ever have to worry about a famine for the word of God in our hearts and souls. We just thank you for your blessings on our life. And we thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.